Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on September 13th, 2018, honoring the work of Maggie Chow, the David G. Fry Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and a former fellow in the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at Columbia University. Professor Chow studies American art and material culture, especially the connections between art and the histories of technology, natural science, and economics. In her 2018 book, The End of Landscape in 19th Century America, Professor Chow argues that landscape was a crucial genre for American painters contending with modernity at the end of the 19th century. During this period of political, economic, and social contestation, the conventions of landscape painting were changed and challenged. Professor Chow uses examples from unconventional instances of a landscape genre, such as Martin Johnson Heed's surprisingly conceptual painting within a painting, Gremlin in the Studio, to reveal landscape painting as a major site for artists adjusting to the modern world. First, we will hear Professor Chow describe the book's argument in more detail. After that, we will hear a response from Elizabeth Hutchinson, an Associate Professor of Art History at Barnard College.
So, and over the years, I've become a great believer in this painting and a great defender of it as well. Um, and once I gave a talk and someone in the audience insisted it couldn't possibly be from the 19th century. Um, so, uh, so for me, this, this little painting was a, uh, was a kind of justification during my uncertain graduate school years that my hunch, um, the hunch that the veritable American landscape tradition of the 19th century was in a kind of crisis in the 1870s, had some legs, or at least some stick figure legs. So um, this, this painting isn't how my book began, but it, it was a kind of keystone for me, locking together disparate artists and practices, because it so purposefully turned landscape painting, that, that very celebrated genre, um, into a joke, a, a devastating but funny one. So um, if my book has any uh, a voice, I would hope that it channels that little gremlin in Martin Johnson Hughes painting. And um, I think I'll just turn now to reading uh, some of the prologue section of the book um, to give you a sense of what it's about. <clears throat> no doubt when you approach this volume, you will have a healthy dose of skepticism. Does the landscape really end? Given its centrality to photography, film, land art, and conceptualism during the last century, there is no doubt that landscape as an artistic practice has demonstrated remarkable resilience, and I do not set out to prove otherwise. My aims in one sense are modest, um, to show that in the late 19th century United States, both landscape painting and actual landscapes were vulnerable, and that this shared vulnerability is particularly revealing of the ways American landscapists reevaluated their genre. While landscape painting survived into the 20th century, its ideologies of a nationalism tethered to nature were on life support by the end of the 19th. Landscape increasingly lost its ability to sustain its earlier cultural function as the spatial, economic, and environmental conditions of American land became incompatible with existing modes of representation. Such cultural and epistemic shifts in American art were bound up with the fate of actual landscapes, which in the same period came under threat from railroad companies, real estate moguls, and land engineers eager to transform Indian territories into tourist parks, squatters' refuges into ornate estates, and wetlands into dry earth. By the end of landscape, I hardly mean to suggest the extinction of an entire mode of artistic practice. Rather, I want to evoke the high stakes of landscape at a specific turning point in American history. The definitiveness of the word end is deliberately designed to provoke. Herein also lies the broader goals of this book those that go beyond a reassessment of 19th century American painting. Writing about the dissolution of a major cultural project is not without its challenges. Scholars have long favored beginnings, the emergence or invention of aesthetic traditions, which mirrors our own endeavors, of course, to innovate and break intellectual ground. The history of American landscape art is no exception. Its cultural emergence has no shortage of historical narrators. This book sets out thus to problematize endings as we do beginnings, to treat them as particularly revealing historical moments. The decline of aesthetic traditions is often a tale of slow dismantling rather than a powerful break. It tends to be easily quantified, but 
how then can we qualify aesthetic decline? This book offers one model for doing so, one that privileges aesthetic peripheries rather than centers, and that grants the curious and unorthodox their due. For it is in these overlooked practices that a tradition's conventions are most subject to doubts and revision. Each of these, this book's chapters detail an artistic struggle where landscape runs counter to the emerging conditions of modern life. A famed artist explorer credited for opening the American frontier to aesthetic consumption faces its imminent closure. An overshadowed artist experiments with depicting wastelands and non-traversable terrain. A penniless painter of nocturnes attempts to make sense of the boom and bust market. And an artist naturalist tries to come to terms with the troubling implications of the Darwinian worldview. The artifacts born of these artistic struggles are a curious array of objects. Among them are butterflies that the artist Albert Bierstadt made by folding and imprinting random paint strokes. Salt marsh panoramas that Martin Johnson Heave, you see that here, transformed into dripping trompoy still lives. Forested views that Ralph Blakelock rendered into million dollar banknotes. And mountain vistas that the artist Abbott Thayer constructed solely from bird feathers. Though seemingly far from conventional landscapes, these artistic projects hinged crucially on the parameters and conventions of the genre and mediated landscape's relationship to major historical changes of the period. And rather than treat such artworks as mere oddities or one-off eccentricities, I have chosen to highlight practices at the productive peripheries of genres and disciplines, borders between landscape and still life, painting and commodity, art and science. The undoing of landscapes, landscape takes place at these aesthetic limits in the form of artworks that were hardly landscapes at all. Only at such limits did landscape become a site of profound interrogation of modernity's spatial, temporal, and relational challenges. As practices about failure rather than invention, this book's limit events are, are regularly punctuated by negative trajectories, misunderstandings, and dead ends. Often, despite their humor, they are sites of contestation mourning, tinged with anxiety, and infused with sorrow. Indeed, landscape's failure was double-edged, at once pleasurable and melancholic, a revelry in decay, but decay nonetheless. Such ambivalent works rely on what I think of as failure as method. The end of landscape, as it turns out, is filled with artists resorting to futility and sabotage as pictorial strategies, deploying absurdist humor and exuberant excess to address the fears and anxieties underlying the end of a terrestrial era. Their artworks imagine forms of tripping and fragmentation at the very moment of landscape's dissolution. Indeed, as we have here, they sometimes actually self-destruct. So I'll stop there and I'll turn it over to Elizabeth. Next, we hear from Elizabeth Hutchinson, Associate Professor of Art History at Barnard College. Professor Hutchinson studies North American visual culture using the tools of visual analysis and post-colonial and feminist theory, with a particular emphasis on objects' contributions to cultural debates. In these comments, 
Professor Hutchinson places Professor Chow's book within the developing history and historiography of American art. Instead of seeking to valorize American contributions to the history of art, Professor Hutchinson explains how Professor Chow is part of a movement of art history that specifies and problematizes the role of American art in the creation of modernity. At the end, we'll hear Professor Chow describe the relationship between artistic representations of land and ecological and political issues. read another few pages of her book. <laughs> You'd get maybe more out of that. But um, eight minutes is not enough time to either summarize the contents of this book or fully articulate its contribution. So instead, let me mirror the richness of the end of landscape in a series of associations. One might be suspicious of a book which tries to draw so much in, even when it's trying to tackle something as complex and entangled as modernity. Early in the book, we read that, quote, landscape painting, more than other cultural practices, mediated the American encounter with geopolitical, environmental, economic, and scientific modernity. That's a lot. And she goes on. Underlying this argument is the assumption that much of 19th century modernity was spatially oriented, making representations of land a particularly relevant subject through which to confront the modern. Like modernity, Maggie's argument is spatially oriented. And she grounds, uh, and a sensitive attention to the objects of study grounds this book's claims. Each argument is generated by visual analysis that brings the reader richly into different kinds of pictorial formlessness and helping us see, or labor to see, what happens when the earth is folded, when proportion is, dare I say, blown out of proportion or when figure gets completely absorbed by ground. I found in the chapter's cyclical journeys out into diverse fields and back through the artworks an affinity with the expansive quality of Vittoria de Palma's Wasteland, a history. Both argue for landscape's essential embeddedness in overlapping regimes of value and demonstrate a confidence in the historical viewer's sophisticated understanding of this fact. The careful attention Maggie gives to the distinctive pictorial logics offered by the works of Bierstadt, Heed, Lakewalk, Thayer, and Sargent model a kind of art historical participant observation, not one in which the historian is remaking the picture, but a slow recreation of how we make sense of landscapes that bend or break the rules. For some reason, this book made me think of Clifford Geertz's thick description, that description which, as Wikipedia tells us, results from a scientific observation of any particular human behavior that describes not just the behavior, but its context as well, so that the behavior can be better understood by an outsider. Geertz's method invites a transcendence of mapping meaning onto the object of analysis, allowing the logic of its own semiosis to emerge. And though she doesn't cite him, she doesn't cite any of the people that I associate with her, but I think that's actually kind of a good thing. Um, though she doesn't cite him, Maggie brings a similar sensitivity to the work at hand as a means of uncovering their significance as something more than failed or irrelevant examples of the exhausted genre called landscape. Geertz's fame rests in a reading of a Balinese cockfight. Maggie's probably lies in her interrogation of Ralph Blakelock's painted currency. But each of the objects she analyzes has its own logic, the unpacking of which demands an understanding of the artist's artistic 
and life circumstances, the pictorial conventions of competing strains of visual culture, photography, stereography, maps, atlases, and diagrams, and a sense of the cultural moment, largely as experienced by people whose relationship to the landscapes in question is mediated through representation and investment, not direct corporeal engagement. These last qualities, of course, frequently are offered as hallmarks of modernity, that a consumption of the world as image. Not that landscape representation has ever been disconnected to concerns about ownership and investment, of course. While I am impressed at this book's meaningful use of research and theory from a range of disciplines, it is most pointedly an intervention in the history of American art. As such, it contributes to a generation of scholarship that moves away from proving the worth of American art vis-a-vis -vis the European tradition to articulating significance and relationship to a modernity in which the U.S. has always participated and helped to define. As a story of genre decline in the face of modernity, Maggie's study recalls J.M. Mancini's forceful pre-modernism, art world change and American culture from the Civil War to the Armory Show, a book that similarly takes up a bunch of also-rands to tell a story that upends our received wisdom about how aesthetic epochs shift. Mancini's argument is that modernism did not result from the innovative work of avant-garde artists, but rather emerged as a result of changing, as the result of changes impacting the viewing public, who began to experience an openness to abstraction around the same time Maggie notes landscape reached a breaking point. Bringing Mancini's story of origins into view along Maggie's of decline allows us to better understand the challenges involved in developing art that is well adapted to the conditions of modern life and the failures that accrued along the way. Reading this book in the age of Donald Trump, I was perhaps most impacted by Maggie's presentation of fragility as the key component of both artworks and what they represented. The precariousness of landscape as both genre and material reality, she writes, was a preoccupation for her artists. It was something they both fled and reinforced by making works that themselves were delicate or prone to decay or to otherwise disappear. Her interest in waste, ruin, parasitism, and dissolution feels very timely as we are daily reminded of the precarious state of aesthetics, environment, and economics due in no small part to their entanglements. Um, yeah, that's something that I think came to the book later than the more pictorial history that, uh, yeah, um, the more pictorial history came first, but then it was, it, I came to realize it was so crucially tied to what was going on with actual land, and so I talk about things like um, reclamation of wetlands, which is a huge 19th century project on the East Coast and in California. That's like the beginning of agriculture, cal you know, the cal California agriculture dates at that time. And so when artists are painting that, certainly it was in, re in relation to what was happening all around them when all of these, you know, drainage, like the heat painting, you know, all the actual drainage was going on around the um, ocean uh, tidal areas on the East Coast. Um, so yeah, it's a huge part of, it ended up being a much more important part of the project than it was originally Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Maggie Chow's book, The End of Landscape in 19th Century America. This concludes our series of archived events from the Heyman Center. 
We hope you'll join us next time for the first of our fall 2020 episodes. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>